Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, this is John Lee Dumas of EO Fire and welcome to Master Leadership. Great leaders ask great questions and this podcast takes you on a journey to master leadership with questions that matter to leaders who matter with your host, Lily Sinabria. Hi, this is Lily, and today we have the pleasure of speaking with Matthew Frame. One of Matt's favorite quotations regarding education comes from the American historian Henry Brooks Adams. The Harvard graduate once wrote that a teacher affects eternity. He can never tell where his influence stops, and Matt cannot think of a more appropriate declaration for schools. He currently serves as Naples Superintendent of Schools in New York. Building on a tradition of excellence in Naples, he has helped preserve as well as enhance the opportunities that students need in order to achieve success down the road and around the world. Confident that high-functioning organizations are built one interaction at a time, Matt knows how lucky he is to work in a school community where members often talk of the Naples family. So welcome, Matthew Frame. How are you? I'm great. Thanks for connecting this morning. Well, we're so happy to have you on our podcast. And as you know, this podcast takes us on a journey to master leadership. And we want to do that today by asking you key questions. So Matt, are you ready to pour into our listeners? Absolutely. Thanks again for the invitation. Great. Matt, now, can you tell us a bit about your path to leadership and what you're doing now? You bet. I've been blessed to be surrounded by talented educators throughout my life. My parents are both retired educators. My mom was a second grade teacher. My dad's a retired school superintendent. And uh, they actually moved the family to the Ithaca area when we were in elementary school to go to the Finger Lakes Waldorf School. And so I had the same classroom teacher for eight years. Miss Smith was her name. And I knew from a very young age that I wanted to go into education. From there, I went to Lansing High School. In 10th grade, I had a social studies teacher named Mr. Finn. And I knew right there that I wanted to be a social studies teacher. So I went to SUNY Geneseo with that in mind and came out four years later. And really the plan was to work a career as a social studies teacher. And I ended up getting a job at Geneseo High School teaching social studies. I think I always had a sense growing up that I wanted to go into education. I'm not sure it was until I was in high school that I said, you know, this is the content area that I'm really interested in. So I think for me, education was always the field. But, you know, I remember uh, very strongly in interviewing in Geneseo, and a guy by the name of Dr. John Hunter was the superintendent at the time, and, you know, had my final interview with him. He made me the job offer and accepted the position. And Geneseo is a great place to grow up as a young teacher, a really um, warm school culture. But I got to see Dr. Hunter in action. Mm-hmm. And you'd hear sometimes stories from folks that had worked there in the past, and they talked about the culture not always being as healthy and the academic programs not always being as dynamic. And I think you got a real sense that, you know, this one person really had a powerful impact on a whole system. 
And so I think I taught for five or six years and I entered a leadership program at SUNY Brockport, you know, really because I'd been able to see him in action and see an outstanding leader. And so I taught for eight years. The nice thing about working in Geneseo is that there's a state college right in town. So I had the opportunity to teach a little bit in the afternoons at the college, which was a neat experience. And after eight years of teaching, I think I was 29 at the time, I applied to be a high school principal in Naples, Mm -hmm. a beautiful little town, you know, really supportive uh, community when it comes to education. And so got the position and, you know, thought I was probably more ready than I was, but hopped in as the high school principal of a 7th through 12th grade building in Naples, New York, and just a wonderful place to grow up as a leader, as a building principal. And, you know, outstanding educators, great kids. You know, I've never been in a school that's as tightly connected to the community. And so worked in that school for four years as the high school principal. And when the superintendent took a position in another district, the board decided to hold a candidate of one process. And so they invited me to apply for the position and they put me forward as the only candidate, which is sort of a nice compliment. But if you don't get the job, uh, you lost out to zero, you know, other applicants. (laughs) I never thought of that. You figured, you know, hey, I'm I'm a (laughs) shoo-in. You know, it feels nice at first. And then you think, boy, if if I lose out to no one, uh, that's (laughs) not uh, great. But ended up, you know, accepting the position and just starting my fourth year as a school superintendent. So it's really been nice to be a part of a school community for going on eight years and, you know, being able to really build on relationships and do some neat things with the incredible educators here for kids. That's wonderful. Now, how would you describe your leadership style? I got to be honest, I always get nervous when people ask that question. I don't know if you have heard of the Jahari window, uh, but it has four quadrants. And in one quadrant, it's what you know about yourself and others Mm -hmm. uh, know about you. Another quadrant is what you know about yourself and others don't know what others know and you don't know and you don't know and others don't know. So I always get nervous that in my answer, people say, oh, boy, that's not his style (laughs) at, at all. But here are a couple, you know, maybe components. You know, one is that listening is really important. I like to think that I'm a good listener. Um, You know, we have two ears and one mouth for a reason. So making sure I'm visible and present and listen to everybody, if that's a member of the faculty or a parent or a student, you know, that's really important. As a leadership team, we've spent some time working with the people style survey, and it really divides folks up into four different areas. Um, You know, you have amiables, drivers, analyticals, and expressives. And so I've taken that a couple of times every time I come up as an analytical. And so one of the things that, you know, characterize analyticals is you can think things to death. You know, you'll take an issue and you'll look at it from a lot of different angles. And sometimes it can take a little bit longer to make a decision. But at the end of the day, it usually has been a pretty thorough process and a thought process. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, hopefully thoughtful. And then maybe the last one, just recognizing that we're in the people business, that relationships are really important and that every child is someone's whole world. And when they come here, we need to treat them that way. And that goes for everybody in our system. If you're driving bus, if you're teaching an AP class, if you're a district administrator, is you know, everybody needs to be listened to and respected because of the people business and relationships really are important. You know, one of the things that I'm doing, because I'm sharpening my listening skills, um, and this is where I practice, it's really wonderful. So I write down things that jump out at me when I listen to your story, your training, and your passion. So I wrote down some things. Do you mind if I share them with you? 
Sure. This is like I'm on the psychologist couch or something. <laughs> well, you know, it's just me practicing my listening skills. So one of the yeah. things that I see about you is that you value family and a close-knit community. Yeah, absolutely. You occur to me as loyal, confident, humble. You're a risk taker. You know, taking risks when there's risks worth taking. That's incredibly important in leadership and especially in education. You're extremely self-aware and you also are open and invite people to speak into your life. You occur to me as someone who is very curious. You did say that you were thoughtful and that's certainly how you occur to me. And I wrote down two other things. You're visionary. When you talk, you speak about the students and thinking about the future and how we impact them. And that's really awesome. And the last one that I wrote down is respectful. You respect those around you, you value those around you. And I have to tell you, Matt, I'm pretty excited that you're on the podcast and pouring into us. Oh, that's very kind. Hopefully a half hour from now, the list looks the same and that you haven't taken out your red pen and said, oh, what a what a jerk. I, I, I wish I called. Pen. Oh, jeepers, you have a red pen. I'm, I'm going to be adding to it, though. That's That's what I anticipate. Now, Matt, which quote or quotes about leadership speak to you and why? You know, I've got a handful of quotes that are tacked up on a board in my office, and there are two that I probably find myself looking at more than the rest. One I've seen attributed to a number of folks, and the quote is, the best time to plant an oak tree was 25 years ago. The second best time is today. Hmm. And I think so many times in education, whether it's starting a capital project, you know, tackling a curriculum initiative, you know, you sort of say, boy, this is work that we should have done 10 years ago. And those are really big problems projects and they don't get done overnight, but sometimes just to start. And I think that idea too of, you know, you can move a full tree, but it's not cheap and it's not without a lot of effort and oftentimes a lot of pain. You know, if you can try to grow something with a little bit of nurturing day by day, bit by bit, you know, oftentimes it's a much healthier process. And so just getting started, you know, some of the challenges in education are so daunting, but if we can find a little end of the string and just start tugging at it, before you know it, you can build some momentum. So I love that quotation. And then I have another one that's tacked up on the board. I don't know who said it or who wrote it, but the quote is, everyone you meet is fighting a battle you know nothing about. Be kind always. Mm -hmm. And so I came right from the classroom and right into a building principalship. And I remember one of the biggest adjustments is that in the classroom, you know, obviously you interact with kids and you see them excelling, you see them struggling at times. But when you're working as a school leader, a school administrator, you know, you have contact with so many families, with so many employees, and you see people at their best and at their worst. Um, you know, nobody gets a free pass in life. We all have different struggles and different challenges. And just remembering that this is a human endeavor. And I think about being a principal, you know, when you have a kid that really is showing some behaviors that are troubling and frustrating, you know, nine times out of 10, the reason will break your heart. Mm -hmm. uh, for why you're seeing that behavior. And just remembering that, you know, colleagues are, you know, oftentimes losing family members, they might be fighting with illness, they might be struggling with depression or mental health issues. And so just making sure that we are kind and we are respectful. And that one's hard, because sometimes when people are struggling, there can be anger or disrespect that can come from people. But just trying to keep that in the back of our mind that you oftentimes can't see the bottom part of the iceberg and what folks might be dealing with. I love that because it's exactly true. When we're dealing with people, there's so many layers. And so it's one thing to know it. It's one thing to feel it. But as a leader and as a superintendent, how do you put that into practice? 
Yeah, I love the line that you build a culture one interaction at a time, and I think that's an important place to start. So if you have, you know, a child that's really struggling, even starting with your initial conversation as being one of respect and kindness and being willing to listen, you know, oftentimes people just need a chance to be heard and to process and to get what's on their mind or what's on their chest, you know, out or off. So I think those just individual interactions, you know, Mm -hmm. something that we try to do, you know, try to get better at is recognizing all the good things that people are doing. You know, if that means dropping folks a note or a kind email to that person, sometimes to that person's loved one or parent, uh, just letting them know how much they mean to our district. So just those, I guess, little acts of kindness. Mm -hmm. And I'm assuming that you're very visible, that you're always out there. And the reason I say that is because sometimes we can have so much on our plate that we get stuck in the office, and especially at your level, um, at the principalship level as well. It's being intentional, right? Yeah, you know, I think you do have to be intentional about it. An advantage we have in Naples is that our system has just over 700 kids. So it's a lot easier to be visible in a Naples. You know, if you have a district and there's 10,000 kids, there probably is more systems management. In a lot of ways, it's retail politics in a Naples. So um, it probably is easier to carve out time to be in classrooms or at sporting events or concerts or different community functions. Um, You know, I'm enjoying our conversation today, but I got to be honest, the highlight of my day is going to be in about an hour. I'm reading to a kindergarten class. And so, you know, (laughs) I'm second to that, maybe. (laughs) Well, we'll see. We'll see at the end of the conversation. But I guess, you know, finding those um, corners to be visible. So if that means, you know, when you're eating lunch to eat in the cafeteria, even if it's standing up, just chatting with uh, lunch monitors or kids or, you know, being at homecoming games or popping by a concert, just to be out there connecting with folks. And selfishly, that's the fun stuff. You know, nobody says, boy, you know, I had a blast entering beds data this past weekend or, you know, putting together this final APPR Excel sheet. You know, that's the fun stuff is getting to spend time with kids and see all the incredible things that our staff are doing with students. Wonderful. Now, what type of leader are you inspired by and why? Yeah, you know, uh, I wish you were here in Naples. I'd show you a photograph that I have in my office. It's of the best teacher I've ever had. It's a guy by the name of Dr. Bill Cook, who's retired from SUNY Geneseo. And I took probably four or five classes with him in college. And, you know, since have become friends and even colleagues, we co-taught a class at uh, SUNY Geneseo together a couple years ago. But if you meet Bill, the first thing you'll notice is that his dress is off the wall. He finds colors and patterns that probably should be outlawed or banned, uh, you know, mixes <laughs> oh, and see, matches. see, now I'm very curious. Yeah. <laughs> Let me see that picture. Turn my screen around. <laughs> All right, I'll grab the photo for you. So here's the picture. Oh, how. And so that's the last day of a humanities course we taught together at SUNY Geneseo. And so I decided to try to dress like him. So I found a wild colored scarf and dyed a pair of pants orange and found an aqua shirt. And so you nailed it, Matt. You know, and if you meet Bill, he retired from SUNY Geneseo after close to 40 years of teaching there. And he sort of splits his time now traveling around the world where he will, you know, work with a young millionaires club. And then he has a foundation and they do work in the poorest parts of the world. They're in places like Kenya and Ethiopia, Vietnam, eastern part of Europe. And you meet with this guy and he just doesn't fit in a box. 
And I think there's a real tendency in education, especially today, where we like to fit everything in a quadrant on a rubric, and we like to attach an APPR score to it. And that's how we judge, you know, the most effective leaders. And, you know, although Bill was a college professor, friend of mine, when I think about the leaders that tend to really motivate and excite me, they're not the beat cops of education. They're the folks that really are artists uh, of their craft and oftentimes can be a little bit eccentric or a little bit quirky, but they just do things a little bit differently. And that's something that I think we try to you know, even do here in Naples. I think about our administrative retreat this past summer. We went up to the Memorial Art Gallery in Rochester and worked with the educational director there to put together a day really focused on the artistry of leadership and the communication and culture and things like that that go into our work. So, And that's not to say that I don't respect best practices, but by folks that come at things a little bit differently. You know, those are the teachers that I tend to remember and the leaders I think that, you know, I want to connect with the most. Do you find that those types of leaders live into their passion? In other words, they're living their passion. Yeah, absolutely. And so that's something that comes across with Bill. You need to spend about five minutes in one of his classes to see that's the case. But he's someone who, you know, adopted foster kids, adopted kids from Vietnam. He would invite college students to his home for dinner, especially if they couldn't travel home for the holidays. And so, you know, looking at education, not as much as a job, but really as a calling. And so those are the types of folks that really stick with me. I'm blessed. You know, I work in a region where there's really talented school superintendents attendance. And, you know, we have a really close group. We try to learn together and use one another as resources. And again, it's the ones that are willing to think a little bit outside of the box and think creatively that, you know, I find myself calling uh, more than others. That's great. Now, is it possible to take a picture of that picture and send it to me? Um, Oh, absolutely. I would love to feature that so that our listeners can see what you're talking about and how you're willing to put on orange pants. You bet. Absolutely. (laughs) All right. So, Matt, what's the best advice you've ever received? Yeah, I don't know how profound this is, but it's a piece of advice I get fairly regularly. You know, probably the person who's had the largest impact on me as a school superintendent is a guy by the name of Mike Ford. He's the retired superintendent of Midlakes. He works for the University of Rochester now, does a lot of consulting, and he's my leadership coach. So we meet every two weeks. And I don't know if it's a piece of advice or a reflective question, but he'll often ask, what do you want the story to be? And so many times in education, we know what the right answer is. We know what the destination is. The path that we want to use to get there is really the tough part. And so if we're rolling out a new initiative, if we're scheduling a conference day, if we're dealing with a personnel issue or a student disciplinary issue, we have a lot of choices in terms of how we want that to look and what we want the story to be at the end. And so I think that's a really good piece of advice. The easy part is figuring out where we want to go, but what do we want people to feel? What do we want people to think about on the path as we get there? So you said Mike Ford was your leadership coach. Now, I don't come across many ed leaders who say that. (laughs) So I'm pretty impressed with that. I mean, perhaps that's changing, but the thinking used to be if you need a coach, then you're not on your game. What moved you to get a leadership coach? Yeah, I don't think that's just your conception or understanding initially. I think most people have that sense of, boy, if you're working with a coach, then you must be struggling or you must be deficient in some area. You know, I would look at it and say, boy, from Tiger Woods to Michael Jordan, those folks had coaches and they're just people to make us better. So 
having the chance every two weeks to sit down with somebody for about two hours to ask them some questions, you know, somebody that can make you think critically, that can hold you accountable to some different goals and commitments that you've made. That's probably the best two hours I have every couple of weeks. And it's not something that just I do. Our whole administrative team has instructional coaching and it's not mandatory. You know, it's something that we sat down as a group and said, do we think this is a good sense of learning? And luckily, I'm blessed to be surrounded with the equivalent of the 1927 Yankees or the 2017 Golden State Warriors. You know, our leadership team is a really talented group of people and they're learners and they want to get better and they want to keep growing. And coaching is a really personalized way to do that. So I'm assuming that you've built teams, you were a part of teams, and you have a team. What does it mean to have a good team and how do you build or sustain one? Yeah, boy, that's a great question. And like I just mentioned, we're really lucky in Naples. We've got a great group of folks on our administrative team. It's a small group, but it's a really tight group. And not to say that we think about things the same way, but it's a group that trusts each other and works well together. So I think about a quote from, I think it's Helen Keller, you know, alone, we can do so little together so much. Uh, And that really is true. You know, if you look at leadership as you know, an opportunity to sit in a corner office and make decisions and operate in a hierarchy. If that ever were the case, boy, it sure isn't today. And it really is teams of people that are going to be able to move a system forward and improve outcomes for kids. More than anything, though, if I'm being honest, putting together a team that is on the same page that works well together. That's been the biggest challenge that I didn't anticipate when I changed jobs. You know, I just sort of thought, well, you get a group of people together and you're going to, you know, be working on the same sort of stuff with one another. And it takes constant care and feeding and reflection. And I think it starts right from the beginning with selecting the right folks. And this is something that we're trying to get better at whenever Mm -hmm. we're hiring in Naples. And I'm remembering a couple years ago when we hired a high school principal, You know, we took the time to sit down with faculty, with kids, with parents at an evening event and also at a daytime event at our local library. And we put together the leadership profile of the next high school principal that we wanted to see. And, you know, we put together a search brochure. We made sure that the hiring process had tasks, presentations, questions, but they were directly connected to our leadership profile and really saying, you know, you got to have a lot of skills as a high school principal, but here are three or four that are just non-negotiables for us. You got to have all four of these or it's not going to be a good match. Mm -hmm. And so making sure, you know, you don't just post the position, but you're really thoughtful, you know, collecting as much feedback from stakeholders when they had a chance to meet the candidate or candidates. You know, we just hired an assistant principal data coordinator, a PPS director this summer. We had them do a number of things in formal settings and informal settings. We had folks take a people style survey so that we have a better sense of, you know, what is your work style, your people style? Are you a driver? You know, are you an amiable? And again, we can sort of say, I think this is going to be a good match on our team, or I think you're going to struggle. And then when you put that all-star team together, making sure that just like a garden, you're always tending and trying to improve. Patrick Lencioni's work is one that I think has been important for our team. The Advantage is a great book and really talks about trust as being the foundation or the cornerstone of a strong team. And, you know, a vulnerability-based trust where when you interact with administrators, it's not a political game of I'm going to withhold this information or I'm going to one-up you, but, you know, we are working on the same thing. We're on the same page. We're comfortable saying I don't know or I need help or I made a mistake and creating an environment 
environment where it's okay to say and to think and to feel those things. And, you know, I'm sure as you've worked with teams, as I've worked with teams, if one person's off in that mix, it throws the whole group off. So making sure, you know, you've got the right folks there and that you're working on your relationships, your communication, and making sure you're all pulling in the same direction, you know, that we're all on the same page with what we're trying to accomplish with regard to, you know, priorities and commitments that we have individually, but also as a group. Mm. I love that you create a profile. You also consider the person's people style. Is that a personality yeah. assessment? Yeah. So you can do, I don't know, a two or three day training on the people styles. And then you also can do kind of a very quick survey. So there's a, a lot of different depths that you can get into with it. We've done a few hours worth of work as an administrative team with that and building up enough familiarity where if you get the results from people, you can get a general sense of, you know, where they are and, you know, how they might respond to other people, but also an awareness of, you know, with some people styles, some will play better with others. You know, they really can complement one another. I guess every style has strengths and drawbacks, but some don't play as well together. Right. And so just being aware of that can be a good thing because, you know, we do bump into each other. We have to compromise. We're not going to agree all the time. And that's a good thing. But we also want to make sure that at the end of the day, we are all on the same page. You know, we do have positive relationships with one another. You know, I like that you value that so much because when we do that, when we learn about people's personality, like I do a personality assessment, it's called the people code or the color code, and it's very similar. You have different styles, but what it helps us to do is connect with people. You know, once I know that this person takes a long time making decisions yeah. and I tend to do it quickly, yeah. then I don't push. And so my communication also shifts. If I'm connecting with someone that's similar to me, I know how they operate. And so that's really helpful. You know, a great reminder, too, is that so often when we're approaching a situation or a decision, we're obviously most familiar with our style. So we expect that people will want and react to what we want and any style. And there's a whole bunch, you know, I, I wouldn't specifically endorse, you know, one over the other, but it really forces you to think about, you know, what does this person need? And so it's not so much your style, but what can I do to be a better colleague or a better supervisor or, you know, a better friend to, you know, this other person? Hello, leaders. Here's a quick message. As you know so well, effective leadership is about influence. So I've created a mastermind group based on Dr. John Maxwell's work, Becoming a Person of Influence. And beginning January 6th, we can continue to grow collectively and start 2018 strong. So gift yourself or someone on your team with this wonderful opportunity to connect with like-minded individuals and lay a strong foundation. Go to masterleadership.org for more details and easy registration. You mentioned trust, and I absolutely believe that that has to be the foundation of a strong organization, but not very many people have that as their foundation. In fact, a lot of times people present as very defensive or insecure. So how do you cultivate trust? Yeah, that's a really good question. You know, I think a certain part of it is it does start at the top. I think you have to be willing to go first. So if you identify trust as being really important, but you're leading a group and you're not willing to be vulnerable with the group, well, then you're communicating non-verbally or at least with sort of the norms of the group that it really isn't okay to make a mistake, to screw up, to have to ask for a little bit of support. So, you know, hopefully, 
um, having a bit of humility and, you know, being willing to reach out to others for support and to let them know when you're struggling. So I do think it starts with the leader and the person at the top. You know, there also, I think, is a reality that if you pulled all the administrators in our region together, there's, you know, 250, 300, something like that. And you said, where'd you go to college? They all went in the same six or seven schools. Mm -hmm. So, you know, public schools, for the most part, are not Fortune 500 companies where you're pulling in leaders from the Midwest and they've got special training. You know, hopefully you're identifying folks in the area, in your systems that have a skill set and a desire to move into leadership positions. But if you think that that they're not going to make mistakes and they're going to be perfect. It's just not accurate and I'm not sure it's fair. You know, I'll have days where I'll be sitting in a capital project planning meeting and saying, I went to school to be a social studies teacher. I have no idea what we're talking about when it comes to, you know, this type of funding or this type of facilities mm-hmm. management. And so, you know, I like that fact that I'm always learning, but I also, you know, want to try to make sure that I don't assume or try to come off like I know it all. You know, that's why we have experts in the system who have all that information. I think if we rely and use one another, everybody benefits. You know, the problem is when you think, boy, I've got to have all the answers and I can't admit that I don't know something or I made a mistake. I think you end up in, you know, pretty uncomfortable positions oftentimes. And I think the system suffers when you think one person's, you know, knowledge trumps everybody's knowledge and expertise. Well, thank you so much for that. I wrote down three other words. You're reflective, you're a learner, and Mm -hmm. compassionate. I'm adding to the list. I didn't take anything away. They're all good so far. (laughs) Well, again, we're not done yet. Okay. So, Matt, can you tell us about a challenge that you've experienced and how it has shaped your life? Sure. So this is one that... I don't think on the surface seems that dramatic, but for some reason has stuck with me. You know, for the most part, certainly here in Naples and in Geneseo, is that we've got incredible faculty and staff members. And I think if you're a classroom teacher, certainly you tend to get a lot of positive affirmation from kids and from parents, you know, especially if you care about what you're doing, you care about students. So I remember, I think it was my first year as building principal, there was an altercation between two different students and we handled it textbook, you know, kids were safe, dealt with appropriately. And in the process, I under communicated with one of the families involved. And a parent came in later that evening, showed up in my office. I was right in the middle of doing 15 different things. They weren't pleased that they hadn't gotten the communication that they expected. They weren't thrilled with how they thought I'd handle the situation. And my reaction to the parent was less than empathetic, less than understanding. I was so busy and kind of frustrated with how they were acting it because I felt like we'd taken care of the situation appropriately. Well, they left unhappy and they took it to social media and they called the news, which thankfully didn't run the story. But it was that sort of welcome to the NFL moment where I hadn't had that as a classroom teacher. And, you know, for the first time, most of it wasn't accurate, but it was splashed around on social media. You know, staff was reading it. Kids were reading about it. Parents were reading about it. And that was really hard. And I think most leaders, most administrators go through some experience that thickens their skin a little bit and just shows you a different side of people or a community. So that was really hard. And again, I don't think it's the most dramatic challenge, certainly, that I've bumped into or our school family has bumped into. But that, for me, really sticks out as being important. And my guess is most people go through something like that. And what did that show you? You know, I think a couple things. And one is that if you want to be liked all the time, don't be a leader, go sell ice cream. (laughs) 
it's not a popularity contest. And if it is, you know, you're probably not making some of the decisions that you need to make. Probably the more important lesson, though, is that you don't quit on a kid when something like that happens. And, you know, one of the things that I'm proud of in that case is that, you know, the family still has children here in school. And, you know, I and we have a good relationship with the family and with the kids. And so making sure that even when we have those negative interactions, that we can move past them, that we don't hold grudges, and that we recognize that our kids really are works in progress. We're all works in progress, and we're going to make mistakes, and we don't write kids and families off as hard as that can be. And for me, that was a very public and a lot of ways embarrassing experience that didn't feel great. And, you know, there's no guarantee that it won't happen later on today or won't happen tomorrow. But, you know, hopefully if you're trying to do the right thing and you're trying to do right by kids that you can move through those negative experiences because they come about, you know, Mm -hmm. when you're talking about being a leader. Matt, thank you so much for sharing that. That was very heartfelt, and I added another word, authentic. I'll take it. You'll take it. Okay. (laughs) So can you tell us about one of your greatest successes? Yeah, you know, I've been trying to spend some time in classrooms, especially classrooms of new teachers. And so something that's nice about Naples is that our faculty and staff tend to stay in the district because we've got a great culture here. Uh, We've got a family-oriented culture. It's a school with a really proud history for good reason here in the southern part of Ontario County. And last year, we had seven or eight teachers retire, which for us is almost 10% of the faculty. And that's a huge turnover for us. And so I don't know if you've seen some of the research, but in certain pockets of the state, certainly in, you know, select content areas, there really are teacher shortages. Mm -hmm. And so we'll struggle to attract different types of educators. And so as we were posting the positions, you sort of have your fingers crossed. And I got to be honest, we managed to hire some incredible teachers. We hired some folks coming out of school who had options to go different places and chose to come to Naples. And we had some people who had tenured, stable jobs in surrounding school communities who decided to come work in Naples. And so I met with them as part of our new teacher orientation day. And, you know, I spent some time talking with them about, you know, what was it when you were going through the hiring process where you said, you know, I'm willing to take a chance on Naples and give up, you know, a stable position or turn down another position. And I guess really proud that I think in a lot of ways we've been able to create, you know, a family-oriented culture, an innovative culture where people say, you know, I want to come and be a part of, you know, what's going on in Naples. Like I mentioned before, we have an incredible faculty and staff. They do a great job of um, sharing what they're doing through social media, which really helps us to tell our story. So if you're a Twitter user, hop on Twitter and check out hashtag NaplesCSD, and you'll see incredible images of what our faculty and staff are doing with kids. And so, you know, instead of driving by two brick buildings and saying, boy, I wonder what goes on in there, you see pictures of kids smiling and having a good time and learning. And I think that communicates what we're all about to other people. You know, so making sure when they are doing some research on us and they're considering a position, and then when they come into our buildings and they meet with a hiring committee, are we communicating what we're all about? So they don't walk out and say, boy, you know, that was sort of a chilly meeting. I didn't get a great reception, but, you know, they walk out and they feel valued. 
And I tell you what, if we look at our hiring process as, you know, 10 of us are going to sit behind a table and we're going to scowl at you and we're going to give you a grade, they're not going to accept a position. You know, oftentimes if we have a candidate who's weighing options, you know, we'll write them notes saying, boy, we think you're going to be a star. We're so thankful you're willing to consider Naples. Best of luck as you're making your decision. You know, we had one teacher say, you know, I'm leaning towards Naples, but I'd like to know a little bit more about the school. You know, we put together a student breakfast for the candidate, put together a tour of different classrooms and really wanting people to make an informed decision, but wanting people to know what we're all about. You know, as you're talking about this process for hiring, it really warms my heart. You know, I went through that hiring process many times. Actually, I have one of my podcasts. It's, is this an ed leadership position or a parole hearing? Because, you know, I encountered situations where I felt the opposite. I felt devalued. And so I love what you're doing at Naples. I love that you're so curious about the potential candidates that you're asking them, what's attracting you? What is it that we can do? And I'm anticipating that you'll get some more candidates coming your way after they listen to this, because (laughs) that's not typical, I have to say. Well, and I think there's a reality in education that for the most part, you know, people won't leave you for $2,000 more money in a different district, but they'll leave you if they don't like you. And so if they don't work well with their administrator or they don't like the culture that you have, and that's not to say that, you know, every day it's like coming to a sandals resort or we don't have our issues. But, you know, I I think to be authentic, you know, just like in our own families, we have disagreements, we frustrate each other, people are passionate about what they're doing, but at the end, of the day, we're committed to the same thing and we care about each other. And you have to be intentional about that. And it's everything from when a candidate comes in, the folks that work in our offices will give them a copy of the yearbook. You know, they'll talk with them and making them feel comfortable. And, you know, just being intentional about that. I just read a Harvard Business Review article and it said, you know, culture is like the wind. You can't see it. It's invisible, but you can feel it. Mm -hmm. And it can have an incredible impact on things. So just everything that you feel and you see when you come into a district, just being as intentional as we can about those things. And I think that's pretty smart because when a person feels comfortable, then you get the real person. Absolutely. And just remembering that people are nervous when they Mm -hmm. come in to meet. So how do you put them at ease so you can get to know them? Because there's no way around, you know, most interviewing is speed dating. Uh, (laughs) You get a sliver of someone. So how do you get as close to the authentic person as you can? Great. Okay. What would you tell a new leader who's discouraged about their working climate or culture? I think oftentimes when people get into a leadership program, they think, you know, boy, I'm going to get my first job and I'm going to change the culture, shift the culture. And culture's deep. You know, culture is your community. It's years and years and years in the making. And so being a little bit humble when you come into a place and taking the time to really get to know a culture. I mentioned this line before, but you build culture, you build relationships, one interaction at a time. So if somebody comes in and they think, boy, I'm going to shift the culture in two months, it doesn't start there. You know, there's a story of, I think it's a monk from hundreds of years ago saying, you know, when I was a young man, I wanted to change the world. When I found out I couldn't change the world, I tried to change my town. When I found out I couldn't change my town, I tried to change my family. And when I found out I couldn't change my family, I tried to change myself. But when I found that I could change myself, I could change my family, I could change my town, I could change the world. And that idea of 
you know, starting with your own interactions with people and they build and they multiply and it'll take time to build positive relationships and positive trust. But, you know, oftentimes, you know, it does start with you. Mm -hmm. So I think just recognizing that it does take time. You know, I was talking with a friend who's working with a building principal who's new to a position and the building principal is really upset that, you know, the teachers in the district and the building were really frustrated with staff and they couldn't understand all the things that kids were going through and they just didn't care about kids. I want to say this is not Naples. This is a different district. Okay. But the new principal is really frustrated that they didn't think the teachers cared about kids. And this colleague shared with the new principal, you know, you've got to dig for the gold in all of your colleagues and mm-hmm. all of your faculty and staff. So you're asking them to do something that you're not willing to do. So oftentimes, as you go into a new environment, perhaps a culture that you're not used to that, you know, could be toxic, could be negative, trying to find the gold in everybody, because for the most part, people got into education for the right reasons. And we all get lost along the way, but doing our best to figure out, you know, what this person's strengths are, you know, what speaks to them, and then one interaction at a time trying to build a healthier culture. I added another word. You're very wise. Um, And I don't see any gray hair yet. I'm getting a couple. I'm getting a couple. (laughs) And I think that wisdom has a strong connection with humility. And just listening to you, listening to all the people that you have speaking into your life, and also how much of a learner you are, and that you realize that it starts with you. I'm so incredibly impressed and thankful that you're Naples, you're leading the way, and that you're pouring into us. I have to keep telling you that. And I know that your head may get big. (laughs) (laughs) Since we hang up, I'm done for the day. I'm heading home. Mission accomplished. Mission accomplished. Okay. So, um, Matt, many leaders describe themselves as lifelong learners. What does that mean to you? And what are you learning now? You know, when you think about schools, we're in the business of learning. You know, that's our core function at the end of the day. And there's that line, if you don't model what you teach, you're teaching something else. And so I think as adults, if we're not willing to model learning, it's not fair. It's not appropriate to expect that kids are going to want to come into our buildings and classrooms and really engage in learning. It's interesting. I've got two younger brothers and a younger sister. One of them, when he went off to college, was a pre-med major and at some point called my parents and said, I want to move to Hollywood wouldn't become a screenwriter, a movie writer. And so that's a call that no set of parents ever want to get. And so he graduated from Cornell and uh, went to UCLA, you know, ended up selling a script and does a lot of consulting. So he moved back to New York and he's teaching at Syracuse University as a screenwriting professor. And I've been reminded talking to him this year that you really have a built-in advantage when the folks that you work with see you learning and honing your craft all the time. So when he teaches a screenwriting class, he's always writing. You know, He's always working on his own scripts and consulting. And so it's really important that in schools, we're doing that same thing. And that, again, is something that's been helped with social media is that you know people will tweet and send out images and messages about our professional learning days. And so we're communicating to our kids in our school community that, you know, when you're not here on a conference day, these are the things that we're doing to get better. So just modeling learning is really important. You know, in terms of what I'm learning, we're learning now. I'm thinking about our board meeting tomorrow night. We've spent a lot of time trying to clearly articulate our district priorities and commitments, and we've got those finally in a place that we're really comfortable with. We've put together a game plan in terms of getting better in those three areas. Our conversations right now really are centered on how do we measure what we value? How do we 
measure the progress that we're making. And we've been doing an article study. Um, I wish I had the title, but it slips my mind right now. But it really focuses on inputs versus outputs. So our conversations as a, a board and administrative team uh, have really focused on inputs, You know, the resources that we can provide. Uh, but now saying, how do we know if we're making progress? And there's this real tension between the coin of the realm when you measure schools, it's test scores. Whether we like it or not, there's a reality that oftentimes drives the conversation. And on the other end of the spectrum, it's you know parents perhaps in the community saying, you know, I love my school. I love what's going on in the classroom. But it might not have any validity when it comes to student performance or student achievement. You know, you can feel great about your school and your achievement results can be horrendous. And so trying to come up with a comprehensive tool for measuring what we value, measuring progress that we're making, you know, that's something that as a leadership team and as a board leadership team, we're really thinking a lot about because we don't see it as something we're trying to check a box Mm -hmm. and say, okay, you know, goals done on to the next thing, but let's really make sure we're investing the time into something that we're comfortable with at the end of the day. It's not state ed driven. It's not Washington, D.C. driven. It's something that as a group here in Naples that knows the community best, you know, we think is going to give us important information. Now, it leads to my next question. If there were something you could change in education in the U.S., what would that be? Yeah, really good question. They have not asked, by the way. I've not gotten this call saying we're looking for uh, change. Uh, If they did call, I think it really is equity when it comes to opportunities for kids. There's a line by Nick Kristoff in the book, A Path Appears, that says, talent is universal, but opportunity is not. And so, you know, we know that our kids here in Naples can achieve just like a student on Long Island in the capital region and the southern tier. And we know that kids in Bangladesh or Arkansas have those same abilities. The challenge is how can we provide equity when it comes to opportunities? And so, you know, I think about Naples, 700 kids in the district. You know, we offer French and Spanish. You know, there are school systems in New York, outstanding school systems, where kids can pick from six, seven or eight languages. So how do we make sure that the opportunities, the education you get in a Naples, in the Finger Lakes region, in the Southern Tier, the Cap region, up north on Long Island, in New York City, in the big five cities, that kids have opportunities so that they're playing with a level playing field as they go into the world of work or college or the armed forces. Great. Thank you so much for that. Now, you mentioned some books, but what have you read that our listeners should read and why? Yeah, great question. So somebody shared this with me not too long ago. This is not the book, but it's a Huffington Post article. And it's something about, you know, like the reading habits of ultra successful leaders. And they emailed it saying, you know, research says that the most successful leaders are reading 50 to 60 books a year. And so I read that. And so, okay, not even that. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. You know, they do talk about, you know, the Warren Buffetts of the world who say, you know, 80% of my day is reading, you know, reading four or 500 pages a day. And so I think there's some truth that leaders have have to be readers. You know, leaders have to be learners. I'm thinking about a book that our Board of Education president recommended that I read not all that long ago. He's a Naples graduate. He went to the Naval Academy, and he recommended a book by Mike Abrashoff uh, titled It's Your Ship. 
And so Mike Abrashoff takes over USS Benfold, which is a U.S. ship in the Pacific. And when he takes it over, I think he makes the comment that it's not the worst ship in the Pacific, but it's in the bottom three or four. Mm. And people are not re-enlisting. There's a negative culture. And so you think about the military as being an incredible hierarchical organization. And so he goes in and takes the time to meet with everybody aboard the ship to listen to their voices, to their suggestions. Gives a great example of a 21-year-old crew member who says, you know, people are really frustrated. We're always painting the ship because it's rusting. And he says the reason that there's rust on it is that the bolts and the, you know, the screws and some of the metal we're using isn't stainless steel, and that's why it's rusting. So they go and they outfit the ship with stainless steel bolts, you know, screws, all that sort of stuff. And now they have to paint it once every 10 months. And so, you know, a willingness to ask questions, to listen, you know, to make recommendations. People talked about the food was terrible, so he had the crew go to culinary school. So using a lot of the same materials, producing better food and better meals. And so here's somebody who is humble, somebody who's willing to listen to the people that they work with, to take some chances, and very quickly turns the USS Benfold into a ship where 100% of people are re-enlisting because they want to be a part of what's going on on the ship. And so kind of a neat connection. You know, we've got a a terrific uh, board president, just started his first year as board president, and a natural leader as he's gone to the Naval Academy and uh, suggested that book. Maybe we'll have him on our podcast. I think for $20,000 an interview. I think that's the problem when you get to that level. Uh, well, maybe you can share the podcast with oh, him so, uh, and we can invite him. So I'll, I'll get our board president. If you want Mike Abrashoff, he's the one who has an agent, but uh, he's got some neat stuff on YouTube. Oh, that's great. And I love how, you know, you talk about listening and I think that's so incredibly important for leaders. So you have a lot of responsibilities, Matt. What do you do on a daily basis to set your mind? So this is something that I've really tried to commit myself to, especially over the last couple of years. You know, I grew up playing soccer, basketball and baseball in high school and played club baseball in college. But I picked up running when I was teaching and so did a couple marathons, you know, a lot of 5Ks, a little bit of cross country. And at times it's been tough to really, you know, focus on fitness and wellness as a superintendent, but I've tried to commit to that over the last couple of years. So I'll get up at 445 in the morning. I'll do, you know, 30, 40 minutes of mobility work, you know, yoga, stretching, and then I'll run usually four to six miles in the morning and just kind of gets me ready for the day. And, you know, would prefer to work out or run after work, but it's just tough with meetings and community functions. But that's a really important part of my day. You know, it gets my energy up. It helps me think about things. You know, this morning I was thinking about our conversation and, you know, trying to anticipate some questions you might ask and some things I might share. But it's a chance where I can sort of think about, you know, my work for the day and, again, keeps energy level up. And uh, so I think that fitness and that wellness is really important. And how would you maintain balance? Because I know your hours are long. What are some things that you do to maintain some kind of balance if there's such a thing? Well, if you can put a disclaimer on your podcast that says, please don't pay attention to the answer he has for this question. You know, in all honesty, I don't think that I'm there yet. It's something that I'm thinking more about. A place where I'm trying to get better is I think trying to find those corners where you can relax, recharge, do things that are important to you and not feeling like the place can't exist without you. Because the reality is, you know, you can be gone for a couple of days for a week and nobody's going to know or care except you. You know, they know what they're doing. They're hard at work. And that time for you might be more important over a break if you take a couple of days off or you try to get out of school a little bit early, one or two evenings a week. Mm-hmm. You know, you make sure you block off some time 
time on a weekend where you can just do something that you enjoy and that looks very different for everyone. But just to realize that, you know, we work with talented people. We work with folks that know what they're doing and we don't have to be on 24 Mm seven. Great. So empowering others is incredibly important, right? Yeah. And that's something, you know, just talking about the Michael Abrashoff book that he, I think, reminds us, you know, when he talks about it's your ship, it's our district, it's our school, it's not my school, you know, it's our community school, it's our faculty and staff, it's our kids school. And, you know, I was thinking about this yesterday afternoon, I met with a bus driver to talk about a couple different things for about an hour uh, late yesterday afternoon. And he left and I was just reflecting and thinking, I don't know the first thing about driving a bus, I wouldn't want me behind the wheel of a bus. But he's really good at it and has been really good at it for 20 years. And so I just need to be smart enough to ask his thoughts and his opinion when we're making a decision or trying to get better, you know, in our transportation department. Great. Now, if you were to go back in time, what advice would you give the younger you about leadership? I'm not sure if he'd listen, but uh, I'd try to give it to him. I'd probably tell him to be a little bit more patient and a little less judgmental. You know, I remember as an eighth-year teacher who just finished up his leadership program, you know, you're in this period where you think you're ready, you know, to move into the field of administration, uh, but you don't have the position yet. And so I remember it in a lot of ways being a Monday morning quarterback. You know, I'd watch the the administrative team in Geneseo and I'd, you know, kind of critique what they were doing. And, you know, I think switching jobs and taking on that role, you find out that it's a lot harder than it might look on the surface and it's a lot more complicated than you might think that it is. So I think I'd go back and, you know, just encourage a younger Matt Frame to uh, be a little bit more patient, a little less judgmental and to recognize that, you know, it's rewarding work, but it is complex work. It's tricky work. And, you know, we've got a lot of good folks that are trying their best. Great. Now, Matt, is there anything else you'd like to share with our listeners that we haven't touched on? Maybe one last thought, and that's just to have faith or to keep the faith. And, you know, if you've been a teacher, you've worked in a school, you know, my guess is that people every now and again, it doesn't happen often, but will get a note or an email or a phone call from somebody they had in their class, somebody that rode on their bus, somebody that walked through their cafeteria line, and they had an impact on that person. And that person looks back and says, you know, I am who I am in part because of this educator. And we don't always see that. Our kids will walk across our graduation stage in June, and a lot of them are just gone. They go off to college, they'll move out of the community, and you never get that sort of feedback loop of how are you doing, what impact did we have on you? And so just to keep the faith, and I think as school leaders, as school administrators, you lose the depth sometimes of relationships, especially with students. You know, you're not spending 40 minutes a day with the same child, and so you know, just having faith that as a school leader, as a school administrator, if you hire the right teacher, they're going to be able to have a positive impact on hundreds or thousands of kids in your school community. And you just have to have faith that that choice is going to make a difference. You know, if you're going through a capital project to be confident that if you can get the right facility built or the right renovations, it's going to be creating a more aesthetically pleasing, a better 21st century learning space, you know, for generations to come, you know, to recognize that in education, we are making a difference. You don't get that feedback every day that maybe you would like, but, you know, I can go back, you know, I hope I've done it on the podcast today. I've had some incredible educators in my life, and I know that I'm not unique. I know that most people have had those teachers and professors and leaders in their lives that have really made a difference. And just to have faith that what we do is really important work. Well, Matt, I want to thank you so much for adding value to me and to our listeners. 
Well, thank you so much. And let me also say that I'm a user, uh, is that I love listening to your podcast. And uh, it's a great way to connect with some outstanding folks from around the state. So thank you for this service that you provide to leaders in New York. Awesome. Hey, thank you again. Have a great day. You too. Take care. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. Hello, leaders. In closing, here's a quick message. Coaching is the art of influence that underpins leadership in the 21st century. It is the very thing that can get you from being stuck to being extraordinary. So go to masterleadership.org and sign up to get a free coaching session. Until next time, continue to ignite that leader in you.